Welcome to Ready to Real Estate, a TREB podcast. This is part two of the RealtorQuest podcast sessions. These sessions were recorded live at the conference and featured guests Rob Hahn on the future of real estate in Canada and Stefan Swanepoel on innovation on real estate. And now here's our host, Jason Mercer. One is Jason Mercer, Treb's Chief Market Analyst, and I hope you're all having a great day today. And uh, for this podcast, we're, we're at RealtorQuest, um, and uh, it's great that we're joined by Rob Hahn, who's an internationally known speaker specializing in strategic analysis, specifically pointed at the real estate industry. Uh, he's also a well-known blogger in the space, uh, blog known as the Notorious ROB. And Rob, I mean, you've been a, a, a great supporter of our event here. Uh, it's, it's, it's the biggest real estate trade show in, in Canada. And I know last year, uh, mm-hmm. one of the most popular sessions was the uh, was the panel, or I guess discussion, <laughs> you could say, with uh, with our CEO, John D. Michelle. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, it left people with, uh, with with lots to talk about. But uh, yeah. you know, maybe start off. Just tell us a little bit about yourself sure. and how you got into this space and, and why we ended up sitting here today. Uh, sure. And uh, thank you, Jason, for the opportunity. And thank you, everybody, for inviting me. Uh, it is absolutely fantastic to be back in Toronto at Realtor Quest. Uh, last year was one of the more fun events that I did, sure. uh, and this year I'm hoping it's going to be even more fun. You know, we'll <laughs> we'll see. Uh, how did I get into this space? Um, Let's see, it's a really long story, so I'm going to try and really compress it because I know we're not recording for four hours. Sounds good. Uh, Basically, went to law school, decided I want to be a lawyer, went to be a magazine editor. My parents said, you're crazy because the starting salary for a lawyer was 125, (laughs) starting salary for a magazine editor was 25. You lose 100 Gs. Yeah, but uh, (laughs) while I was there, I started a a dot-com, grew it, got investors, sold it to USA Networks, left. Uh, went into real estate uh, consulting work. My, one of my big clients was Realogy. Got hired by Realogy, went there. Went out on my own in 09 and uh, been doing sort of strat work for various companies ever since then. But I started blogging really in 2009 when I went out on my own. I've always wanted to be a blogger. I've always wanted to write. And uh, finally got the opportunity. Somehow I got lucky and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm able to say things that you know, uh, most people can't say and ask questions that most people can't ask. So that's, uh, that's, that's the briefest version that I could come up with. Well, that sounds good, and it's interesting. And I know, you know you've done a lot of work uh, um, south of the border, and, and mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of similarities uh, with regard to you know organized real estate yep. south of the border, but but also in Canada, and certainly you know one of the I guess focal points, if you are when, when you're thinking about the real estate industry, is yep. is the the role of the association. I know yep. it's you know in Canada the association oftentimes is is linked to to an MLS system. It's sometimes a little bit different in the states where you can have mm-hmm. sort of two operating or more in the in the <laughs> no, same it's the same. Space. It's the same. I mean. You know, the, the U.S. and Canada, uh, we're, we're joint at the hip. Yeah. Right? In fact, we're the only two countries where we have kind of that MLS-based right. system of real estate, right? Where you have buyer agents, you know, listing agents, cooperation compensation. Sure. Um, all of which, by the way, is under threat, which is what I'm, you know, my speech yeah. this year is going to be about. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, we're, we're pretty much identical, I think, when it comes to that. The differences tend to be kind of on the margins. They're important differences. Yeah. It's like, for example... Your regulators are far more activist than ours are, right? Um, especially under the current administration. Right. So, but that you know, that's sort of on the margins. So, in some ways, I feel like Canada leads the way uh, for those of us, you know, as you put it, south of the border, 
as a point I've made to a lot of my clients and people down there, yeah. which is we need to pay attention to what's happening in Canada. You know, when the whole uh, Vancouver situation went down, you know, I said we need to pay attention to that because that's coming here. Um, you know, when the the Competition Bureau versus Treb case, you know, finally sort of ended, right? I right? said so we need to pay attention to that. Um, so from that standpoint, there's that. But then when you have sort of developments happening in the U.S., it's gonna make its way here. Sure. You know what I mean? Um, the point I like to make is Canada's not some backwater third world country right. <laughs> with grass huts. I mean, it's a G8 industrial nation. Whatever works in the United States will ultimately find its way here. Sure. Right. So and it's an interesting point. I mean, you know, Toronto and the Greater Toronto Area is obviously one of you know Canada's uh, it's Canada's biggest city right. and, and certainly one of the biggest regions in, in North America. And it's an right. interesting point that you know we can learn you know from each other. But right. sort of thinking about um, you know that's at the association level. I mean, yeah. where do you see the the future for associations unfolding, say, over the next decade or so? Over the next decade, um, I you know what's what's interesting is I don't. I don't have a real happy outlook for that, right? Unless the association leadership and um, you know the members themselves start to think of themselves a little differently. So this is, you know, and I'm sure I would have already given my presentation, you know, which is like in an hour sure. by the time this podcast was published. Right. But the general thrust that I'm having is we need to move away from kind of the current model, right? And the, I would describe the current model of the Realtor Association as an association for realtors, right? A lot of the interests around member benefit, member services, um, how do we help our members be more successful? I think we really actually need to pivot to an association of realtors for the public. If we don't make that transition, I don't know that the association actually survives some of the changes that are coming, right? Whether that's uh, from technology, disruptive models, regulation, all of these things, I, I feel that the association really does actually have to make that transition. But if we do, then we're actually in this really cool place, right, where the members, the leaders, you know, the, their, the vision is sort of united. Because there's so many problems, right? I mean, especially here, I mean, you know, Toronto, I've been following a little bit. The housing costs are out of control. You know, the millennials, like that generation is completely screwed. And these are things that aren't necessarily within the control of an individual agent. But right. there are certainly things that, and, Toronto, and Trev does a great job of working with local government. I think Maria does a great job of working with your province to try and alleviate some of those things. Right. But that's really where we need to be. That's, that's the real future and the role, I think, of a realtor association. Yeah, I know, like, you know, speaking from the work that I do and certainly mm -hmm. some of my colleagues at, uh, at, the, at the Toronto Real Estate Board do, I mean, certainly, um, you know, when you think about housing, it's near and dear to, Correct. you know, you know, everyone, whether Correct. you're talking about owning a house or renting a house. Right. And so the issues that the average consumer, the average home buyer right. or home renter right. faces are always top of mind right. at the, you know, at the political, at the, at the, at the policy level. And I think that gets, you know, to the heart of what your, your topic is today and what yeah. you're presenting when you're talking about the, the truth of the future consumer, I think is the title of your, uh, your, I, I, your I have to modify it slightly because oh. <laughs> I didn't want to depress people too much. I, I started going into all these stats about like gener about millennial generation right. and how completely screwed they are. And I said, you know what, uh, I, I would like people to, to walk out of there <laughs> instead of like, <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, it is a real thing, but that is something where organized real estate can have a real impact, as you know. Yeah. You know, and one of the issues is I don't know that the consumer knows that, right? So when you look at some of the commentary in like mainstream media, you know, things like that, you kind of get the feeling that the consumer sees organized real estate 
as some sort of like mafia, you know, as some sort of protectionist scheme. Like, no, that's actually not what we are. We're actually out here working for you. Right. But we do a poor job, I think, of conveying that. So that's something that I a pivot where we have to make. So how do you think we could do a better job, A, of understanding you know, what the consumer is looking for and probably more importantly what right. they are going to be looking for right. uh, you know, as, we move, uh, as we move forward and, right. and uh, um, you know, sort of adapt to that new reality, at right. least in your opinion. Right. No, it's, uh, the, the main thing is we have to, we have to sacrifice to some extent you know, uh, kind of member benefits and member comfort. Right? It, it, it's not going to be about that. So... And and I don't, and I'm not, I don't know that it's necessarily Treb, you know, because actually Treb does a really pretty good job, and John is a fantastic leader, you know, and a visionary from that standpoint. But I work with a lot of associations where you have some innovative thing you want to try, but a member might say, "Well, that that hurts my business, that hurts my income." It's like, you know what? <laughs> At some point, we're going to have to say we're going to side with the consumer, right? And if there's a conflict, we're going to side with the consumer because we are no longer an association for members, we're an association of members. You know, and this is a vehicle through which we all, you know, who sign up for the code of ethics and, and all of the, have these ideals, try and make housing a reality, make home ownership a reality, make home rentership a reality, you know, just make it easier for the public right, to find, have a place to live. I mean, that's, it's so important. So I, mean, I, think I think that's the pivot. Yeah, and, and I think it, you know it, it, it's a, it, it's an interesting point. I think it gets to the notion that housing is important to the overall economy. Absolutely, well. I mean, to society, right? I right. Mean, whether we're talking about you know people are attracted to a place like the GTA because there's good work prospects, right. but it's also a nice place to live. Right. You got to be able to find a place to live. Right. And know, afford it. The, that's right. And, right. and and the the impact, the economic impact of the housing industry is a positive one. Absolutely. But imagine the impact if if uh, you know. It, it's difficult to get into that space or get right. into that market, and that's right. uh, I think we're understanding where the consumer is coming from uh, right. is important. Right, and, and if we don't make that pivot, the way I look at it, you know, as the consumer goes, so do the politicians. Right, and you know, I'm not a fan of government intervention in 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 the economy generally, and something like in this like real estate industry, as a rule, I found that when politicians get involved. They, they, the, as I'll put it, they, they don't operate with a scalpel. They operate with a chainsaw. So, <laughs> you know, to the extent that we, we as an industry could do a better job, I think, of not having that happen, I think it's good for everybody. You know, so that's... It's kind of a, a, an enlightened self-interest, I guess. I, I definitely think that's true when you're thinking about, you know, the role of associations vis-a-vis -vis policymakers that you're right. I mean, a lot of times, you know, I mean, over the last couple of years in, right. the, in the GTA, we've been talking about foreign buyers we've been talking about you know mortgage stress tests and, right. and, and that kind of thing and you're right i mean it often is sort of a you know you say chainsaw you know right. i've said before you know sort of a sledgehammer approach yeah, yeah, in the yeah. sense that you know yeah. it's, it's a one size fits all approach when you know everyone wears a different size of shoe right, right. and it, right. Uh, uh, but you know from a policymaker's perspective they're paying attention to what people are saying on the Correct. street Correct. and they uh, and they and they take action I want to maybe shift away a little bit too, because when we're talking about sure. associations, at least in Canada, you know, oftentimes that 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 conversation goes hand in hand with the notion of the, the multiple listing service or, or or MLS, and, right. and and maybe sort of building upon your experiences in the states, but also you know what you know about what's going on right. in, in Canada. You know, what do you see as the the future for MLS, and where is that going? Uh, I think the future for MLS is is fundamentally there will be fewer of them. Uh, they'll be larger and they will be richer. 
So <clears throat> the biggest issue with MLS, quite honestly, and this is something that MLS hate to hear, and I know I offend my friends and you know colleagues when I say this, but the products suck. You know, I mean, it's 2019, <clears throat> and the and the type of products that the MLS are making available to their paying customers, it ought to be an embarrassment, right? And when you look at third-party, true technology companies, what, what that experience is like, versus an experience using MLS products, yeah. it's ass, it's no good. <laughs> and here's the thing, I'm not blaming anybody. Right. It's very, very important. And the reason is because the MLSs can't raise their fees or charge people the way that a private company can, which means they don't have the money to invest into technology which means that the technology vendors don't have enough margin to develop new products. It's, it's right. this vicious cycle. Right. So the only way around it to me is you've got to actually have enough money to be able to invest into products and services. The only way you do that is to get large right. and actually have pricing power you know, such that you can afford to reinvest into your products and services. And I know it's not something that <clears throat> excuse me, maybe members don't want to hear, but like, I don't know what, what does MLS cost? on a monthly basis for sure. trip for in Toronto. What does it cost here? Roughly. Fifty no. bucks a month? Sixty? Sure. I mean you know, I mean if you if you think about, you know, the right. you know, members are, you know, joining the Toronto real estate board, right. I mean that's one of your largest line items. I know, but like on a monthly basis it's probably under hundred bucks a month. And I'm pointing out, look, I mean we have like some of these vendors that are at this fine trade show. Yeah. You go buy some CRM product and it's three hundred dollars a month. Right. No, I see like, which point. one's more important, right? Except that those guys can afford to charge that, whereas Treb has its hands tied because, you know. Yeah, there's a certain correct. ceiling or budgetary correct. constraint that you correct. operate under. But if Treb were now, let's say, again, just not that this is going to happen, right. but let's say uh, Toronto and Vancouver merge the MLSs, that's a big enough market where now maybe you have the ability to invest, now maybe you have the ability to do some of those things. So I think the future for MLS and and I think I actually see this happening in Canada before it happens in the United States. Is uh, just maybe not one. You know, I, I'm not a big right. fan of the national MLS concept, but two or three maybe. You know, it's just much larger, uh, much richer. That's able to invest into the product services that their members need. Because otherwise, I mean. You know, there comes a point where '90s technology is just not going to cut it anymore. Yeah, and so know? say, like, if if or, if a, if an organization or a group or you know what, whatever the case may be, right. were, to, were to, to be able to, I guess, realize those economies of of, of a scale and, and 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 really look towards sort of improving on the current state right. of MLS. I mean, where where would most of the improvements be? I mean, where where, where I think yeah. So this is a bit biased because I'm involved with a company. I'm I'm on the board of advisor of a company called Box MLS. And uh, they took a step uh, just last month, uh, which I'm a huge fan of. I think the future is going to be open source, right? And it's, it's a difficult concept, it's a difficult topic, but you know, you could reach out to me. I put up a video on YouTube of a presentation that I did. Right. But if we could move more towards an open source software framework that allows all these vendors, all the accumulated talent to collaborate without anybody feeling like you know, they're helping to make some competitor rich. It's like, no, we all benefit. Right. I think that's a way that we can get around it, right? And if you think about it, most major technology companies, whether it's Google, Facebook, Apple, sure, 90% of all of that is open source where they all collaborate. And they compete on the 10% that makes a difference. I think that actually helps get around that problem in a real way. But in the meantime, MLSs still have to get larger. They have to get richer. They have to have pricing power. Um, so that's, that's kind of the future that I'm hoping to see because the alternative, right, 
is worse. The alternative is it all goes away and it's all, we become commercial real estate, right? So what do you think, like on, on the open source front in terms of, um, like, so that would be third parties that uh, you know perhaps don't offer sort of the core MLS product in right. terms of you know a database of of, uh, right. of, of, of homes for sale and, and right. for rent, but this would essentially be, you know, we're sort of opening the door. This is no, no, the, okay, uh, so this is why it's so hard, right? Okay. Open source doesn't mean that the data is open. No, I understand. It, it just means yeah. that the software, so for example, TREB, you know, the MLS itself, right. might run on an open source data platform, Okay. but then the front end could be, you know, there's different, so the sure. example that I've been using is WordPress, okay. right? Because, you know, your listeners are probably familiar with sure. WordPress. WordPress is open source, it's free. Yeah. Nobody, everyone's paying some web developer, because we're not web developers. Right, right, right. I pay a guy, you yeah. know, like, yeah. and it's worth it. But it's a fraction of the cost of what it would be if I had to code all of that from, Do it from you know, scratch. Correct. So that's kind of the idea. It's like, right. and you know, I own the copyright to all my all my articles, so yeah. the data is mine. Sure. But the software is is, is much better. Right. It's much more flexible. It's much more pluggable. And a lot of people are making a lot of money, you know, on that free platform. So that's kind of what I see. So you know, like Showing Time, for example, provides a really valuable service. Right. I guarantee you, they have developers who have to get into the nitty-gritty pipeline of MLS stuff in order to get anything done. So if that were open source, it's a lot easier for everybody. You know, so that's kind of what I envision for technology for MLSs. Um, but then I also see that governance reform that needs to happen, right? You know, there's, all, there's so much that we need to do and not a lot of time to do it. Where, where do you see, like when I think of open source, it, it makes you think of opportunities. And I know there's yeah. a few examples in the U.S. about, yeah. uh, you know, where, where members of a given association are offered like a, a, a choice in terms of the, say, the front ends of that right. they were used. And, That's right. And, and would you see like a more open source concept yeah. leading down that road in, in greater Oh, yeah. Number? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and the example that I've used is, so again, using WordPress as an example. Yeah. WordPress has front ends that are free. Right. And then they have front ends that are professional and paid. I use a paid front end because yeah. there's features and I like the design. And, and right. I realize I have to pay somebody you know, for, for all this awesomeness. I could use a free front end, but you know, it's going to lack some of the things that I want. Yeah. So it's, that's sort of the concept behind this. So front end of choice, I actually get it radicalized. In my mind, if we move to an open source platform, it will be, it will be platform of choice at the individual agent level. You know what I mean, like, because it's open source, sure, I could go sure, hire sure, sure. somebody to build me a front end right. for me, as long as I'm obeying the rules, as long as I'm you know complying with all the policies right. and all of those things. You know, if I want to spend money on that, fine, let me. And I think what we end up with is just a plethora of choice. Sure, and it's not a concept that would be entirely foreign to uh, to the individual realtor no. or brokerage because you have, I mean, people are taking data feeds or setting yeah. up their own site and, yeah. and, and what have you. So yeah. it would be a logical next step, I Correct. guess, if uh, you know if they're that kind of uh, they're right. that kind of access point. Um, you know, so we talked a lot about associations. We talked about yep. you know MLS and what you know the the, the future may hold there. Um, just thinking, sort of, you know, a U.S. versus Canada, yeah. uh, maybe to, to, to finish off. There are there other sort of trends that you're seeing south of the border that you see sort of permeated into our marketplace. So you just said, you know, the size of the U.S. market yeah. needs to be the Canadian market. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's just logical that you'd see, you know, innovations and inventions you see in yeah. the U.S. making their way uh, yeah. into Canada. Uh, so I'm I'm a, a huge bull on the whole I buyer movement, as we've okay. been calling it. Uh, and there are two variants of it, but the one of them is what I call the market maker. So this is Open Door, this is Zillow. Okay. Now that whole thing is not in Canada yet. 
totally get that. I'm telling you, it's coming. I'm, I, I think we're going to see in the next three to five years that the where companies go and buy a home for cash right. at you know really competitive market prices, um, I think that's going to make its way here, and I think it's going to be enormously disruptive. So you know the presentation I'm giving today, a big part of that is yep. talking about what I call the rise of institutional real estate, right? So between something like iBuyer and uh, changes in sort of consumer expectations and, and uh, availability of data technology. Yeah. Um, I referenced a video by a gentleman named Alex Rampel, who's the general partner of a venture fund called Andreessen Horowitz, okay. which is pretty much like the most successful venture fund in history. You know, they were early investing like Facebook and right. GitHub and all these major consumer internet plays. And what he talks about is like, now real estate agents have to have answers to consumer questions that are not gut feelings. And the example that he uses is, should I list my house and price it high, hoping for like a, you know, international investor? Should right. I price it low, hoping for a bidding war? What should I price it at? When should I list my house? Should I list it on a weekend? Should I list, like, and agents will give answers to that that are sort of like, in my experience, well, I, trust me, gut feeling, I've been doing this 30 years. And his point is, that's not gonna fly anymore. Going forward, you have to have data. You have to have evidence. You have right. to say, you should list your home the third week in April because our data shows that that generates 4% better, you know, uh, higher prices and 3% faster time on market. Some, you gotta have something. Right. And the individual real estate agent really can't do that, which means that companies have to do that, which means data scientists and, yeah. you know, uh, whether it's third party or brokers or association, somebody has to do all of that work right. to hand the insights and the, and the tools to the agents so they have answers for consumers when they have questions. I think that is a huge shift that's coming. Um, and it's happening in the US already, uh, so I figure once those companies have proven it there, the natural choice is okay, there's a giant economy just north of the border, let's go there. Right? So I think it's we're going to see that happen. It's interesting, well. and uh, and I guess you know the data side of things and the eye buyer that 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 is kind of bridging that gap because on one side you have people that say, well, look at right. you know the, the, this eye buying opportunity, it makes sense for me. Right. But on the other side you have people that are maybe asking, you know, they want to ask more questions, which is where Correct. you know the realtor comes in, Correct. especially if they could take advantage of a you know a broader way of data that, that can sort of. Uh, um, solidify, you know, the, right. the, the value that they're adding to that to, to that trend. And the competition is going to have, you know, sort of force that on on the industry anyway, because you know we already have companies like Redfin, who, by the way, is here in Canada, right? You know, where they have these data tools, they have these algorithms, they have AI, they have big data, they have machine learning, they have teams of data scientists, right? So they can equip their agents with those answers. Okay, well, if you work for, you know, Remax and your agents don't have that, you know what I mean? Like competition requires that those agents also have, right. oh yes, we should price your home at 439, 282. How the hell did you come up with that number? We've run a bunch of numbers, right? we've done all this data crunching, right. and we think this is the optimum price. It's, it's going to be things like that. So I think that transition means that the age of the sort of solo practitioner, you know, uh, Yes, have the entrepreneurial mindset. Yes, absolutely. You know, do all that. But you're going to need somebody to give you this, these answers. Somebody to give you this, this, 
this data related evidence so they can actually work with your clients. Otherwise, your competitors will eat you alive. That's how I see it. And I guess that gets back to too what we were talking about earlier is, is that, uh, uh, it's that it's that sort of potentially that open source relationship back with the, the, the systems that allow people to, Correct. I guess, build and compete on the basis of data Correct. and data analysis and, 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 and making that available. That's right. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting concept. That's right, so it's, it's, you know, it's a little scary, but when you think about it, there's a lot of opportunity there, right? Sure. So if you're, you know, if you're um, a really large brokerage, you know, maybe the way you compete is by, we have our own data science team. Right. If you're a small brokerage, maybe that's not something you can offer, but you can offer something like, we're going to partner with a data company to try and give you the tools that the big right. guys have. And then now we're back down to sort of service right. and human relationships and all those. Like, none of that goes away. Right. It's just that, you know, the, uh, so this is the way Alex puts it, and I agree with him, that in the future, real estate agents will all work for a company. They'll all work under the rubric of a company. Sure. Because only companies can, can provide this sort of heavy-duty data analysis, machine learning, and all of these things. Whether that's a brokerage or a you know, tech company or a third party, who knows, but they're all going to have to rely on some company to give them the tools so they can be competitive. Right. Thank you very much, Rob. Really you're so appreciate welcome. your time today, and uh, I know uh, I know your session later today will yep. be uh, will be well attended. And I sure hope so. <laughs> if nothing else, people will be talking about it. I'm sure you know, people the, will agree and disagree. The, the, the one bit. one one amusing thing I discovered: this is a cultural <laughs> difference. Yeah. So the last time I came, you know, like, and this is every every presentation, every speech I've ever given in Canada. <laughs> I feel like people are just have, like bored out of their mind, like. Nobody laughs at my jokes, nothing. And I realized later, it's like, they're just polite. Because <laughs> afterwards, like, that was really funny. I'm like, why don't you tell me? Why don't you laugh? Like, nobody laughs, nobody claps, nobody, nothing. And then I, uh, I know afterwards. for certain people are listening because, you know, certainly people were talking to me after your presentation last year. I'm yeah. sure I'll hear from them again uh, I hope later so. today. So, again, so. really appreciate hey, your time. Thank you again. And take care. All right. Thank you everyone who tuned into this episode and, and thanks to Rob for, for taking the time to, to, to speak with us today and, and certainly stay tuned uh, for more podcasts to follow and you can subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes and Google Play to be notified of new episodes. Thanks again. This episode highlights the good work of a Treb-supported charity via the Realtors Care Foundation. The March of Dimes provides a wide range of services to people with physical disabilities throughout the country. See how they're making a difference at marchofdimes.ca. Hi everyone, it's Jason Mercer, TREB's Chief Market Analyst here at RealtorQuest, Canada's largest real estate conference and trade show. We've got a wonderful show lined up for you today with one of the most notable authorities in real estate in North America and internationally, Stefan Swanepoel. He's here to talk about innovation in real estate. He's an international best-selling author who has written over 45 books and reports, including his Swanepoel Trends Report and the well-known Danger Report. He's also a widely sought-after speaker with over 1,200 presentations for groups ranging from 100 to 10,000 people. He served as CEO of nine companies and two nonprofits, and he's widely recognized as the leading visionary on real estate trends, and we're thrilled to have him with us today. So welcome, Stefan. Hi, Jason. Right How in. are you? It's good to see you. Thank you. 
And look at, I mean, uh, uh, you know, we've talked a lot in the past and you've helped Treb even with some of his strategic planning. And, and uh, I, I think at, at no time, at least in my involvement in real estate, as we've seen things moving so quickly with regard to technology and change with regard to, you know, associations and, and how they uh, help their members and how they, you know, interface with the, the general public. So speak a little bit to, you know, how we've seen things change with regard to uh, you know the real estate space, particularly around sort of new innovations over the last you know few years. Good observation, Jason. Thank you. Um, the industry, just like everybody else, or like a child or an adult, we're always going through change, right? That there's sure. always innovation and new business models. But even in a human's life, we don't all grow and expand at the same time, right? There are growth spurts in a teenager's youth, sure. right? The same way in our industry. So although we're constantly changing, the change pace can accelerate or decelerate depending on external influences. And if you throw fuel onto a fire, it'll burn higher. Yeah. So if you throw money at it, if you sure. throw technology at it, if more than one innovation comes at the same time, it can accelerate the change in the speed. And we are most certainly at the moment at a time of accelerated, well-funded, well-capitalized, very innovative technology leveraged change. It's happening. And what do you think, uh, I mean, from your perspective, I know you work a lot in the United States, certainly south of the border from, from Canada, and, and what do you see that's sort of unfolded in the U.S. that where, you know, we've seen a lot of money thrown at different, uh, uh, you know, new, I guess, new uh, approaches to real estate and selling real estate. What, what do you see as sort of the, uh, the key influences that will make their way north of the border into Canada? I think as every industry attempts to uh, innovate itself yeah. and redesign itself, we've seen many of those changes already take place in many other industries where we've looked at the, um, the taxi industry, the hotel industry, the travel industry, the retail space, the, the hiring or renting of movies. So if we look at all those spaces, right. we've seen where uh, technologies come in, proposed an alternative way of how you possibly could do something. We did not know if it was going to be working or not, or suitable or not. And some outsider said, well, I'm willing to take a gamble on that one. Let's see. And they would put a disproportionate amount of money against that concept. Now, we've seen many concepts fade. Uh, Google succeeded, but Yahoo didn't. Right. So not every new innovation necessarily is going to be disruptive, and not every new company is going to succeed. But because some failed, we should not discard all of them at the same time. Right. So at this point in time, um, they've already automated, changed, leveraged, uh, created, innovated many other spaces, and it's just, it's real estate's turn. They're, they're at our space. Uh, we're not special, we're not first, we're not last, but because our industry is very fragmented, I think they, they try to do the industries which were already a little bit more uniform and consolidated. Um, if you look at the airlines, you look at the hotels, there's multiple players, but there's a handful, a half a dozen or a dozen. Sure. In real estate, we have tens of thousands of companies and hundreds of thousands of people. So I think our industry was just a little bit lower on the list, but it's our turn. So outsiders don't want to bet on an existing player because most existing players have already played their cards. They already have what they have, their market share. Right. So they're looking for innovation. So when somebody comes around and says, I have a plan, I have a new idea, yeah. would you like to fund it? that people say, yes, why not? And they are giving those companies large sums of capital which allows them to actually make mistakes. So when we sometimes look at new companies and we say, oh, Jason, that'll never work. Well, maybe not under previous circumstances with previous funding. 
but maybe with a shift in technology, a shift in consumer, a shift in behavior, with a disproportionate amount of money, maybe it will work. Which are the ones which might come to Canada? Now that's a hard one. Canadians are lucky. You tend to not jump on everything America does, and that's a smart move. You sometimes wait, I don't know, 6, 12, 18 months, and it's almost as if you're watching it play out. And then sometimes when it goes wrong, you skip that bad jump. But when it does work out, you do get on it. So you're not behind the curve. You're just because of your, I think, your legal structure, political structure, right. the size of the country, the smallness of the population and the size of the country. Sure. You're not quite as um, bold as the Americans sometimes are to move to market. Which are the interesting ones? I would say discount brokerage, interesting. Employee brokerage, mm -hmm. complicated but interesting. Virtual brokerage, most certainly very doable anywhere, especially with your, your um, large geographical area. I think right. that, that would work. Um, flat fee structures, very doable. Um, acquisitions and roll-ups and, and, and mergers like you do with uh, Compass, uh, also possible, although you might not have the volume of market share. There's not, a, there's not a lot to buy. So I would probably say flat fee, virtual, discount. Interesting. And I, I want to step back and touch upon, you know, you're, you're speaking a lot about innovation. Obviously, you know, that's something you're focusing in on and, and uh, the idea of cycles. Um, and, you know, my background is sort of regional economic development and, and, and planning. You can talk a lot about there, like, you know, the, the innovation cycle over time. And, and, and I think you've spoken about there being, you know, having been about nine cycles of innovation within real estate and maybe not going through all nine sort of cycles, but how has that sort of progressed? And I, I think you talked a little bit about, um, you know, more money being thrown at, you know, real estate ventures that may or may not work or may or not pan out over a short period of time. How has that sort of changed the duration of these cycles? Good question. I don't think that the cycles are as clearly defined as you have in your world. Right. You're significantly more exact and precise. These are softer, a little bit more fudgy kind of topics, but, but we try to go back. We were able to get reasonable information all the way back to 1850. Okay. So we try to look at, at the late 1800s, the early 1900s, just before and after the Second World War, the, the advent of the baby boomers, um, uh, and we try to see, were there any significant concepts, trends, business models, funding, innovations, consolidations, acquisitions, new entrants by players that became national that, that right. got momentum not not just one guy that did it in sure. let's say Ontario right. but did it go from Ontario to to British Columbia or did it go across the country and we were able to identify about nine periods and the periods are roughly mm, 12 13 14 15 years okay again I couldn't point to an exact start and end date but you could say well prior to 1972 there were no franchising right. in the US in 72, Century 21 started and created the gold jackets. Right. ERA followed a few months later and created the blue jackets. Remax started a few months later and created the 100% concept. And they were followed by a number of other companies, Better Homes and Gardens, Gallery of Homes. But so prior to a certain date, no franchising. And then within a very short period of time, it's almost as if they mushroomed, right? They went from zero to hero. Right. And in, in a period of, I don't know, 10 years, they sold something like 10,000 franchises. So we, we could see that that period personified the innovation of, of franchising, 
it led to national expansion, it led to bigger companies, and then after a period of roughly 10, 12, 13 years, it's almost as if franchising stabilized. It didn't die, it didn't go away, sure. but it had reached market saturation. That sort of maturity part yes, of the curve. Yes, right? exactly yeah. right, exactly right. So it was that maturity part of the curve. Right. And then it was time for a new innovation. Right. And then what happened is in the United States in the mid 80s, big corporations, public corporations said, wow, we thought real estate was a mom and pop business. Look at that big one, look at that big one, look yeah. at that big one. And they started buying them up. Now they didn't, one guy didn't just jump in and buy them all in one day. It took about a decade and a half from around about the mid 80s sure. to around about the end of the 2000s. You had Royal Trust up here in Canada yep. got involved. They bought Royal Page, sure. right? You had Sears buy Coal Banker. Right. Hilton Hotels and TWA bought ERA Real Estate. Metropolitan Insurance bought Century 21. Ultimately, Realogy bought Century 21 and ERA and Coal Banker. Right. So we went through stages of, call it institutionalization. Right. And then maybe consolidation within the institutionalization. And that ended probably yeah, mid 90s to late 90s. And that was about the time which the internet came along. Right. And suddenly these big companies say, I've got all these assets. Oh my goodness, how do I connect them? How do I network them? Sure. Let's start with a local area network and then a wide area network. Oh, thank God the internet is here. So they jumped on the internet curve. Right. And the next curve started again. Right. And now, like my, my, my sense is, and you know, certainly you know, uh, our CEO, John D. Michelle, and yourself talk a lot. And, and you know, certainly when I'm talking with, with him, my sense is, is that you know, the, the capital that's flowing from, I guess, non-traditional sources, at least from the perspective of, of, of real estate or the, the real estate field where you're, where you're getting you know, investment you know, from, from Wall Street and, and those type of sources. And, and what are they looking for? Where do they see the change moving forward? We've kind of matured or plateaued, I guess, in the first internet age that's affected real estate. So, you know, what are they looking for as sort of the next wave, if you will, the next so first, upswing? First, I'm going to pick up, you said John and Michelle. I'm yeah. going to give a shout out to John. Sure. He is probably one of the smartest and best association executives in the entire North America, USA included. He's great. You guys are lucky to have him. So money, 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 money. Uh, money's great. So the amount of outside capital has fluctuated between the low billions right. to two or three billion per year, every year, for approximately the last mm, three, four years. Right. That's a lot of money. For those people who don't know, a billion, nine zeros, right? So I mean, that's, a, that's a big big number. The average person who runs a business is a self-made millionaire or is a broker or some mom and pop business or it's a husband and wife team. So they generally don't have access to billions. Right. I mean, we, so they've run businesses on, on tens of thousands and they're probably very shrewd entrepreneurs, very good operators. But, but their businesses are generally small. Right. An investor can't put a billion into that business because they will never get a return. Sure. So what they've now said is, we'd like to pick the next Uber, or the next Airbnb, or right. the next Netflix, or the next Google. And they're looking for people which have a, a grand plan vision right. to re-engineer the whole process. Now, most of those people that get the money are usually young whippersnapper, MBA, smart, tech-based kids yeah. that look at the industry and say, why have, you guys, why have you guys been doing this for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years this way? I have a dream, right? Now, many times that dream is not yet quite thought out. It's maybe not refined. And as they jump into this with enthusiasm and excitement, they might actually test their model in uncharted waters, which means sometimes they do things that don't work. Right. What we shouldn't do as an industry is we sometimes look at that from afar and we say, hey, Jason, that isn't working. Anyway, I told you so. Remember, they have the money and the luxury to make mistakes. They're doing changes which we're not willing to do. 
and they have the the speed to market. Where if they make a mistake, they usually correct it pretty quickly. Sure. Come back and then change the alignment just to another degrees. So I think that most of the new models have a high possibility of success because they have so much money behind them. That's interesting, and, and sort of thinking about you know in in the past where the industry was driven by entrepreneurs, whether on the you know franchise side of things or or you know the independent the, side, the, yeah. the, in, the independent side, it was still an industry where if you made too many mistakes, obviously that was going to you know have a pretty noticeable immediate impact on the bottom line. If you're relying now, as you say, on nine zeros in a billion dollars, changes a the rules. Bit, there's a little bit room for more room for error, and and yeah. I think. You know, if people are investing those kind of dollars, they're expecting that you know there's a little bit more room for risk, and and so you know failure is sort of part of the uh, the overall success equation. Yes, yes, they're they're not expecting a return tomorrow, right? And they're not expecting normal return rates, right? right? They they want to see I don't know a 10x, right? They want to see a big return, sure. And they're willing to wait three, four, five, six, seven, ten years for that 10x return. And they understand that that I don't know half or 90 percent of what they invest in don't necessarily get to 10x, not every not right. every venture. Now, it's not that the new companies are accident prone, don't get me wrong, they have the luxury to be able to make more mistakes than what we traditionally did. Sure. But if you're a relatively smart person, if you have a disproportionate amount of money, and you've built a team of multiple smart people, then you don't make too many mistakes. Right. Yes, you you maybe not, you don't have the, the knowledge and the experience of the industry, and you don't understand where all the skeletons are buried, Maybe it doesn't matter, right? I mean, so Uber didn't have to worry whether every car which they were going to get was going to paint it yellow, right? right. Yellow wasn't a color. Where in taxi world in New York, you had to have a yellow cab taxi, otherwise right. it wouldn't work. Yeah. So color suddenly no longer became important. Right. Now that's a, a very simple one-dimensional analogy. But there are things in our industry that we as an industry have over time made sacred cows. We've said, no touch, you can't do that. The new players are saying, don't tell me what I can or can't do. Right. I'm going to try everything. That's exciting. Yeah, it is. Uh, what, what do you see as exciting when we think about you know the association side of things? We're here at you know Trebs Realtor Quest, and, and certainly it's an event that your know, association puts on for you know 55,000 you know uh, members and, and MLS system users. What do you see at the association level sort of unfolding? Uh, you know, both in the U.S. And, and how do you see that you know infiltrating into Canada as well over time? The association has a few lucky, fortunate positions, and that is, it's highly unlikely that an outside investor is going to pump money into a model to try and sure. erode a non-profit organization, right? There's no, there's no point in doing that. Yeah. So I don't think that uh, the onslaught of innovation is going to necessarily directly hit the association world. But at the same time, when the members are changing and the brokers are changing and the, the transactional model of technology and buying and selling a home is changing, then the, the support organizations, right. the, the, the vendors which are all here at your trade fair, the association, the nonprofits, the charities, the MLSs, they all have to change. Otherwise, the membership is going to feel that you are no longer as relevant or as topical or as current as I would like you to be. So there'll be an increasing disgruntledness of what are you doing, what am I getting for my money? Right. So associations have to, I think they should reinvent themselves they should not wait to be disrupted. They should disrupt themselves and be creative. Um, and that's hard. It's hard to disrupt yourself. Sure, it's, it's hard to disrupt yourself when you know, members are, are, are looking for a certain bundle, I guess you could say, of, of, uh, of, of core services. But at the same time, what, what do you think, what would be that disruption that would 
you know, put an association at the top of the heap, if you will? I, I'm going to pick a hypothetical number, but I would say 50% of what you do as an association, you should probably put it on a chart, look at your bottom 50%, cut it out, and just throw it away. So there are things which we credit as association which date back three, four, five, six, seven decades, which we're now doing it because there's a small group of vocal members that might seem to indicate that they like it. There's a time which you just have to say, it's not progressive anymore, all right? Paper is a simple example, but if we're doing anything which is paper-driven, we should have probably already cut that, that. We shouldn't be debating that. There shouldn't be a reason to debate that. Think of things which a new progressive, virtual, employee-based, flat rate, discount, aggregated, national, global, tech-based company needs. And let's come up with new services, which they would, they, it's almost like when Stephen Jobs created the iPhone. We didn't know that we needed a new kind of phone. We were happy with the flip phone, yeah. right? And when he came out with the phone, we said, oh my goodness, and we got addicted. Right. What if your association could come up with two or three or four new services that haven't been tested, they're not in the market, the mar members haven't asked for them, but yet when you come out with them, the market says, oh, how did I ever live without them? I can only get them from you guys. There are certain things which an association can do because of your, you said 55,000 members. I mean, that's unbelievable. That is an awesome number. Just think of the power, the clout, the scale that you could leverage if you could do the right thing with 55,000 right. users. I mean, off the chart, off the chart. That's right. Well, uh, Stefan, I want to thank you very much for, for taking part in our podcast today. And, and certainly you've been a great supporter of you know, both our, our Realtor Quest conference, but also the Toronto Real Estate Board over the years. So I want to thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for taking part Thank you. Today. Thank you very much. Good luck. And thank you to everyone who tuned into this episode. And thank you uh, uh, for, for, for listening on, on Stefan Swanepoel's insights and trends in real estate. That's it for us today. Stay tuned for more great podcasts and make sure to follow us on social media both on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play to be notified of new episodes. See you next time. Mm -hmm.